nurses and hypochondriacs, the podcast that brings nurse experts, patients, and hypochondriacs together to discuss hot topics in healthcare. And here is your host, Ercilia Pompilio. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about ketamine. In the 80s, it was known as Special K and Cat Valium. It distorts perceptions of sight and sounds and produces feelings of detachment, and it can put you in a sort of psychosis, which is probably what all those club kids really loved about it. In 2019, a form of ketamine was approved by the FDA as an antidepressant. And today we're seeing all these ketamine clinics open up all over the place, and they're treating things like depression, anxiety disorders, and PTSD. But is ketamine really the magical cure to depression and all these other mental health problems? On today's episode, my very good friend, Dr. Deborah Gambrell, she's an anesthesiologist. She'll be joining us to discuss ketamine and how it affects consciousness. We'll also be talking a little bit about the importance of fevers in children. You won't want to miss this episode, but first, a word from our sponsor. Nurses and nursing students, all healthcare workers, really, we have a lot of documents to keep up with. And unfortunately, care facilities don't help much. That's where Nurse Backpack comes in. This app is great. It's easy. It's free. And now you can carry all those licenses, credentials, records, and things your workplace wants on your phone. You can even add work history and other records like CEs. To add or update your info, type it in or photograph the docs front and back. It's really that simple. And then all you have to do is set reminder dates for expirations and renewals. You're putting a lot in there. So Nurse Backpack is already secured for you. Plus you choose when and if you share your resume. You can send it to yourself, your manager, or as a job application just with a few clicks. You're not a filing cabinet. You're a healthcare professional. Don't let paperwork cause mischiefs or worse. This is the most complete document assistant you can get for healthcare. It's an app and it's free. Download Nurse Backpack today. All right, so it's 2020. Welcome back, nurses and hypochondriacs, and welcome to the show, Dr. Deborah Gambrell. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm so I'm looking forward to this. Me too. I'm so excited to have you on. I mean, we've been talking about it for years, and now you're here, which is awesome. Um, let's just talk about how we know each other, because I think those stories are always so fun. Uh, I was working at Children's Hospital here in Los Angeles as a pediatric nurse practitioner in a unit called Surgical Admitting. And what we would do was do that pre-ops on the kids going to surgery. So we would do an anesthesia evaluation, a history and physical to make sure that our patients could go under anesthesia. And you were the anesthesiologist. That's right. And I was always happy to get kids that you had seen because I knew I could trust your judgment. <laughs> if you told me, if, if I got a page from you and you said, listen, there's something up with this kid. I'm like, done. Like I knew I never had to second guess you. Like you just had this sense that was beyond the labs and that physical and the, the history. Like you always had this sense of if the kids were going to do well. Uh, thank awesome. you so much. Yeah, yeah. That's very sweet of you. And now you're doing amazing dynamic stuff. Tell us about yourself and what 
has been going on in your world. And we're going to get into this interesting ketamine subject that's actually hit the waves mid-2019. I, I think it was uh, really starting to hit the media. Um, a lot of people started doing it, or some people started doing it. I actually know one person who went under ketamine, and he may be coming on the show. This may be a two-parter. But go ahead and tell us your story and how you got all involved. You got it. So I did a traditional residency, traditional medical school. I went to anesthesia training in Jefferson, and it was all very traditional. Um, I had an incident at Jefferson that made me question what the bigger purpose of medicine is. You know, we gave a medication to a patient that said they were allergic to it. They had a horrible response. And instead of the whole medical establishment coming behind and helping the patient, they further victimized him. And that really shook my world. I was like, there needs to be something else to medicine or I can't be in medicine. So I decided to do pediatric anesthesia because all in all, for the most part, people in pediatrics are just more connected to the human spirit. They're more there for the right reasons. So I got a second board certification in pediatric anesthesia and my son was born and he had autism that was not diagnosed. The pediatrician said he was normal. And I still had that lingering question. There has to be more to medicine. Because everything I've learned so far in, in two board certifications and everything I've gone through hasn't helped him. So there must be something. So I've been on this continual search of what is healing? What does it mean to heal? So I got a third board certification in integrative medicine and learned kind of the other side of Western medicine, you know, using the things that aren't pretty typical. You know, I also pursued training in biodynamic osteopathy. It's a 10-year program. Uh, training in anthroposophic medicine, that's a five-year program. I have just been searching and searching for really what does it mean to have health and what does it mean to heal. In 2018, I had the opportunity to work really closely with a patient and his family living with them and working with a medication that I had worked with in my anesthesia residency, but really on a very limited scale, um, and that's ketamine. And during my training, ketamine was used for, for instance, somebody that had to have dressing changes for burns every other day, something that's one of the most painful procedures you can have. And so people would be given ketamine, and they just didn't care that they were having this procedure done, and it worked really well. And that was, ketamine was also, I don't want to cut you off, but ketamine yeah. also back in the day, uh, the military used to use it in surgery. That oh, was sure. one of the main anesthetics. Absolutely. You can use it out in the field. You can give somebody a ketamine dart into the shoulder with ketamine and maybe atropine or some other medication to really stun a person. So you can either do immediate decompression of a broken limb or uh, you know, putting back of some eviscerated you know, guts or whatever, you can do something pretty, you know, substantial in the field and or get them off of the field to, to further medical care. Um, and you're not risking the hemodynamic compromise you would with something like propofol or fentanyl or morphine, you know, those could push somebody over the edge into a, a dangerous area physiologically. So ketamine is very stable in that way. Um, so yeah, so, um, Throughout all of this training, I realized that a big part of healing is how do we unfold 
the consciousness that lives within us? How do we unfold so that our awareness of who we are is operating at full capacity? So a really good way to understand this is if you watch a person waking up from anesthesia, like if I were able to bring you in my operating room and you were watching a person wake up from anesthesia, the first thing you see is maybe a slight bit of movement in their shoulders or grimacing in their forehead or, you know, maybe um, just slight movement. You know, they're just starting to become aware that they're there. You know, they don't have any memory of this, but they're just starting to come into their body. And over time, you see that their breathing changes. They become more responsive to their external environment. They may actually now be able to hear the nurse say, you're waking up. They may be able to start to feel pain. And as they're coming into their body over the next hour, they're really unfolding into what it means to be an awake human being. And this process certainly happens with children. And we see this with a normal child, we see this dramatically with a child that has a really good fever. So they might, you know, they might become sick, have a really good fever, and then have a neurodevelopmental leap afterwards. Um, we see this normally in children that are growing that have neurologic glitching. So there's a problem with the unfolding. Maybe they start toe walking, or they start stuttering, or they start having a tick, but they outgrow it. That's normal. So this unfolding process like a flower that's opening up happens to all of us. And how we unfold is really the definition of health. And any of those petals that cannot unfold are areas of blockages. And when you have blockages, you can have things like, you know, you can have things like heart attacks or strokes or emotional instability or depression or gallbladder issues or anything you can think of medically. You know, those are blockages in the inability to unfold. So as I went through my training and I got this opportunity to work with this family, one of the big issues was trauma. He had a lot of trauma that he had accumulated during his life that prevented the unfolding of his highest potential. You know, it just prevented him from expressing things that he needed to, and he ended up getting very, very sick with chronic disease, chronic illnesses, infections, um, all of these things that just prevented him from unfolding. And when we started using ketamine, he was able to access these things that weren't living in his conscious awareness, but his subconscious or even unconscious things that are living just in his body. We were able to access these things and start to get movement in these areas. And by moving these stagnant forces in the subconscious and unconscious, when he was waking up again, he would have a relief. He had space to move. That's what he would say. I need space in my brain. I need space in my body. And that was his experience after the ketamine is, is he now had space to work. He wasn't so blocked. Um, Can we go back to something you said? Okay. So you were giving him ketamine, IV. Yes. Was it under anesthesia? Or was he awake, conscious? I mean, how does, take us through the process of giving ketamine to a patient. Sure. So most ketamine clinics, 
And this includes the VA system, which uses a lot of ketamine right now for PTSD and veterans. Most ketamine clinics are set up where they have these stalls, for lack of a better word. Um, so there's bed, curtain, bed, curtain, bed, curtain, five or 10 patients in a row. They are all under this, you know, artificial light in a, uh, a, a you know, a, a sterile bed with a gown or whatever they're wearing. They're hooked up to monitors and there's a drip next to them. And they have somebody come in and do a quick screening to make sure that they're an appropriate candidate. And then they press start on the drip and that person walks away. So the patient is left in the stall next to other patients that are left alone in the stalls wow. to kind of go on this ketamine experience all by themselves. Oh and, and it does help because this is the model that they use at the VA. And it does show that it relieves depression and PTSD. What I do and how, because of the way I was able to use this medication with this one patient, we were able to really get deep into the intricacies of what is the best way to use a consciousness altering medication to relieve trauma. And what I found was that staying present with the patient and giving sensory experiences so that the patient of their own will can come out and meet these experiences like chimes, like real, like not, nothing computerized, nothing digitalized. It's all real chimes, a violin, for instance, um, real touch, proprioceptive, you know, um, whether it's biodynamic osteopathic work. Um, we've even used things like acupuncture. We've done neural therapy, which is injecting procaine into different energetic spots in the body. We've done different light therapies. So several times we would do these transitions of consciousness as the sun was setting. His bedroom overlooked this beautiful west view. So as the sun was setting, we transitioned consciousness and that was very powerful. Um, Talk a so, little bit about the transition of consciousness. Like, what do you mean about that? Like, sure. So we as human beings are always transitioning our consciousness. The biggest, easiest way to see this as is with sleeping, waking, right? We're either asleep or awake. That's a big transition in consciousness that everyone can appreciate. And you know when you wake up in the morning, you can't just jump out of bed to go answer the door because someone's there because you might trip and fall because you don't yet have full consciousness in your legs. You know, you can't do an advanced math problem within minutes of waking because you don't have that full consciousness in your brain. You can't eat a huge pizza immediately upon waking because your brain isn't online yet. So you know, when we're talking about transitioning consciousness, it is this way of being fully present in our body where we are completely online. There are many ways of altering consciousness. Doing what it does. With the brain-gut connection, we know that there's altered consciousness in the brain just because of the food we put in our belly. When we take a medication like a statin, you know, there's a lot of stories of people that have rage after taking statin. Wow. Um, we know that people that take antacids have issues with things like cancer later or kidney disease. You know, we know that taking anything into the body, any sensory experience, even if you're just looking at light, different wavelengths of light, early morning light, 
or artificial blue light on the screen or any of those things are going to transition consciousness. And, you know, I imagine a future where we do anesthesia with only light that we can figure out how to use light to alter consciousness in such a way that we can tolerate painful surgical stimulus for sure. That's on the horizon. That's really interesting that you say about the light because we have, and we were talking about this a little bit before the podcast, childhood depression, teens and depression, huge epidemic. I mean, I I told you I was working at a clinic yesterday, Um, all my PHQ-9s, the uh, depression or the suicide um, screening tool that we use through the roof. I was getting huge numbers. I was getting 20s. I was getting 18s. And I was literally banging my head against the the wall. Do you think it's because these kids are constantly on their phones, on social media, watching TV? Because I asked them, okay, so what do you guys like to do when you're spare time? And most kids, they all say video games. Yeah. They all say social media. We don't hear, I love to ride my bike. I love to swim. Love to play hopscotch outside. I don't hear those things. Yeah. Well, I work with um, one of the people that I work with in my team, uh, Scott Compton. He is, he works with EMF warriors. And so he's always into this, anything light, digital tech, um, cell tower stuff, all of this, you know, electromagnetic frequency related mm-hmm. technology that we're using. Show. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> absolutely. He's, he's, he's wonderful in podcasts. Um, he is a video game designer for 20 some years before he went into this. And he tells me that they create video games with dopamine feedback loops to create addiction, especially in children. So, I mean, this, these video games are geared to, to create addiction. And this addiction is not like the addiction of tobacco that we had 30 years ago. This is not the addiction of alcohol. This addiction is so deep because it's through light. There is something about it that is just more, a more fundamental addiction. And when we were talking about what it means to heal and to grow and develop and to unfold, when you have a child that is on a screen and that is their sense of the world, even if it's only two hours a day, it is an altered sense of reality that does not allow them to live in their body. And when they are not in their body, they feel like their body is betraying them, which creates a sense of self-hate, which leads to depression and suicide. Oh my God. So body awareness is critical for this generation of children. So I commend all those people that are doing screen weaning programs for children, everyone who's out there doing movement therapy, that is the healing, you know, force that and allowing children to get sick and caring for them when they're sick. And movement are the two things that children need to face this epidemic of depression and suicide. The more strains we have, the more suicide we're going to have. There's, there's no doubt about it. Oh, yeah. And I think a lot of the families, I mean, there was an article, I think, that was written last year. I wrote an article on screens and kids because I've seen um, speech delay in them. And mm-hmm. I start. I took a break from practice uh, a few years. I did a few other things. And as soon as I went back into practice, I was getting these two-year-olds, and they were all two, 
not speaking. And the parents thought it was normal for them not Mm -hmm. to speak. I'm like, oh Mm -hmm. no, this two-year-old should be having a conversation with you. Okay. This two-year-old should be, you know, telling you what's up. They weren't. They were doing weird things. They weren't even moving their mouth. They were having expressive uh, aphasia kind of like just, but, but they could run a, we had an iPad in the room. They could Mm -hmm. run it like a computer programmer. Yeah. You know, I go, you know, something's going on here. So I did some research and I only found one study at the time. And I think this was in 2017, which showed it it was in Canada. um, And they had just presented it to the American Academy of Pediatrics that screens were causing uh, speech delay in kids. And then last year when I had went to the NAPNAP conference, the Pediatric Nurse Practitioner Conference, the uh, American Academy of Pediatrics was saying no screen time before the age of two or even mm-hmm. less, you know. And I tell my parents that because they, people are using screens as babysitters, right. you know. And, it, and it's just profound and it's really scary. And it's in the lower socioeconomic population that it's hitting. And that's know? really frustrating. Yeah, mm-hmm. and because the higher socioeconomic, they kind of get it, you know, yep. especially uh, Silicon Valley people because mm-hmm. the article uh, that was written in the, in the New York Times was like uh, Silicon Valley people do not, have electronics around their kids. Bill, Bill Gates didn't do it. Steve Jobs didn't do right. it. They kept technology away from their kids for a reason. And we know, we know that when we expose children to tech and media, their cortisol goes up, their pupils dilate, digestion ability goes down, brain processing goes down. We know that all of these things are happening. And if you have a child who has elevated cortisol, they do not unfold. They do not unfold. It actually prohibits growth and development. And then what you see happen is you will either see a child that has outbursts and rage because they're trying yeah. to break out of that, or you see a child that has you know, illnesses all the time until their body says, you know what, this isn't helping, and they stop becoming sick. They just never get sick. And it is not normal for a child never to get sick. That is total, you know, that is shut down of their neuroendocrine immune system. Wow. And, you know, it is, it is a real threat with tech. And when they don't so, get sick, they don't feel then, because that comes into yes, play, right? Right. Because illness totally is an opportunity for shut, growth. Shut down, right. Yep. Fever is an opportunity for growth. Fevering has been with us and it has been a way that we have evolved forever. Fever has been a very fundamental way that we can evolve as a human species. Same thing as when we created fire, right? That was a huge advancement in our species. Fever is the same way. It allows us, especially when it's a good fever, to have what I call a gut reset fever. So it clears out everything that hasn't been previously digested. So any undigested viruses or bacteria or even undigested emotions, traumatic experiences, um, anything, any sensory overload, it kind of helps you digest what it is that's in your environment that hasn't been previously digested. That's That's why we see these developmental leaps afterwards. You know, we see kids where they go back to school and the teacher's like, they're reading now. They couldn't read before their illness. I've had kids like that. I've had uh, patients where they get these fevers and then they're more mature. They're they're more in their bodies. They're more, they're more integrated. They're more more integrated. integrated. Yeah. Yeah. They're unfolded more. They are unfolded to a higher capacity. Now, the caveat with that is a child in 2020 is not the child that we were in 1970. Like it is not the, the immune system. The gut is not producing the fire 
in a directed way that it was way back then. And, you know, between then and now, of course, a ton of Tylenol, a ton of antibiotics, a ton of vaccines, a ton of immune modulators, just, you know, bombarding the immune system. So the immune system is either over or underreacting. So they're not targeting what they need. They're they're kind of flying blind, shooting at random targets. And what happens is, is that when you look at the immunologic profile, it should be wide and varied as we age. We should be having an immunologic education that's varied. What we're seeing is very narrow banded, like immune markers, like TNFs and ILs and all of these things are just in a very narrow spectrum. Uh, They haven't differentiated. And we know that even with the soil, differentiation is health. You know, the the more we can get differentiation and and complexity, that is another thing way to express consciousness. The more diverse we are, the more conscious we are. Mm -hmm. But the diversity has to be intelligent. It can't be chaotic diversity because then that's illness. So with a fever in a child today, we are looking at a heater that can't burn as hot or as intelligent. So we run the risk when a child fevers today of seizures, of things getting stuck in the body because of lack of unfolding, like appendicitis, meningitis, pneumonia, any of these, you know, hot spots where the fever force gets trapped in one part of the body because it's not moving. We should always be moving when we're having a fever. You know, we should either be urinating or, you know, discharging some way, you know, through the nose or coughing up something. We should be discharging all of those toxins because an illness, especially in a child, is a way to detox. Detox and grow. But the children today can't burn as hot or burn hot in wrong places like we just talked about. And the other thing we're seeing an explosion of is pandas. And I'm sure you've seen that, you know, that the the, the symptom where my child was totally normal, had a fever, and oh, now yes. they're, like, they're like autistic. Yeah, I've you know, had what? a couple of those. Uh-huh. Yep. Yeah. And that, that's becoming a, lot, a bigger deal now because they're not keeping the heat in their gut where it belongs, the heat going to their brain which you cannot expand your brain, right? We have, we have a skull, you know, the heat is supposed to stay in our abdomen where you can expand because it's soft. So when, when the abdomen can't contain the heat and it goes to the brain, you get seizures and meningitis and pandas and all of these things. So, you know, parents today would do a great service to let their child fever, but then treat the child and not the fever. Don't treat mm-hmm. a number. You know, right. is your child, is your child crabby when they're sick? Good. Mm-hmm. They're supposed to be. Are they docile right. and unresponsive? That's not a good thing. As you know, you know, from your mm-hmm. anesthesia experience, yeah. Yeah. you want kids who are <laughs> reactive. Right. So, you know, that's my little spiel on fevers. And um, there's so many courses out there that you can learn how to care for a fever at home and how to make sure that the, the heat is going all the way down to the feet. If the feet are cold or the kidney area is cold, you know that the fever is getting blocked somewhere in the body. I wrote a book a few years ago with a nurse on some of this home healthcare stuff and specifically mm-hmm. a few chapters on fevers. And it's on my website if anyone wanted to order it. Um, but it's really practical, simple things you can do at home. And the one thing you mentioned about the um, Hispanic population that I adore, both in the operating room and just as parents, is they stay close. Yeah. When their child starts fevering, that mother is there. Like she mm-hmm. knows every little thing that's happening with her child throughout the whole illness. And in the operating room, 
that parent, when they come in and the child's going to sleep, that mother is bonding with her child. We're like a lot of other parents that are not Hispanic tend to freak out and it's about them in the operating room when they're right. there with their kids. Yeah. It's about, they're freaking out. It's about out. them. It's about them. Yeah. You yeah. know, where the Hispanic mothers, you know, and this is obviously a huge generalization and doesn't apply across the board, but I've seen more of a pattern where the Hispanic mother is just there and they're the ones that cry when their kids yeah. change consciousness. They're the ones that show emotion and cry and really right. like feel what's happening you know, with empathy. And um, it's, it's, it's just beautiful, you know, to see that connection, the bonding. Yeah. I'm just going to add on to that. I remember when parents would come in so many times they would tell me, don't tell my kid is going to surgery. Yeah. And it's right. because they had the anxiety because something right. happened to them and they're all, Oh, because what I was, and I'm like, well, this isn't your experience. You know, right. I mean, it's part of your experience, but it, right. it's just like, you know, we have child uh, health therapists here who will child life therapists who will go ahead and work with the kid and bring them and tell them what's going on. You tell them they'll trust the whole experience that you're going to be there when they wake up. I mean, if right. you're not telling them what's going to happen to them, they're not going to ever trust you again. How you can know? you digest something that you have no idea what it is? Yeah. How can you digest that? You know, and it's so interesting because I work with autistic kids a lot. One of the centers I work at, it's um, for dental restoration for, you mm -hmm. know, mm -hmm. low and no income children. And we get a lot of autistic children in. And it's so interesting because, you know, we're talking about being out of your body and, and, Autistic kids are very sensitive to toxins in the environment. If they smell the nitrous running in the room, they immediately react from across the room. Wow. Where mm -hmm. a neurotypical child is just like, they see it and they're like, okay, this is weird. Mm -hmm. But an autistic kid really struggles with the anesthetic, to the transition of consciousness, because they have, to, they have to come into their body. Because the thing about anesthesia that most people don't appreciate is you're not going anywhere. Your spirit and soul or whatever you believe is not leaving your body. It actually goes deep within. It actually dives deep into your body. As, and as an autistic child, your relationship with your body and your soul and your spirit and all those levels, they're not quite all lined up, which is why they're, they're running into things to get feedback, sensory feedback, or they're spinning, or they, they like certain noises or colors or sounds. And so what I noticed with these autistic children is when I would put a certain gas on, I would say, do you smell the red? Huh. And by, by combining by two senses, uh -huh. yep, by combining two senses, they were able to uh, digest it. They were able to take it and accept it. And then I would put a different gas on. I was like, do you smell the blue? And that really got them calm, their cortisol level down. Like it was amazing. Wow. Just that little difference made. And the other thing I noticed with autistic children is the way that you do an anesthetic, they can actually wake up more integrated than before they went to sleep. And this I noticed three years ago. So depending on how you do the anesthetic, keeping the mother close pre-induction, mm -hmm. giving warm blankets post-induction, giving certain medications toward the end of the procedure to allow physiologic flow through the liver, you know, propofol is one of those. You know, just doing the anesthesia in a certain way, the child can wake up more in their body. In fact, parents have made comments of, my son's looking at me. 
Like wow. he's looking at me after the anesthetic. And that is what really the question you asked earlier about ketamine, that moment when I had those experiences with the autistic children better after anesthesia than before made me think that there is a healing potential to changing consciousness yeah. and working with the body and the, those sub and unconscious levels while they are asleep. That's really kind of what put that seed in my head for how can we use anesthesia to heal? And then now I'm working with ketamine doing the same thing. It's called consciousness shifting trauma resolution. So I shift the consciousness, just loosen it in, in a way that the lower members can really re-establish a new relationship to each other and move stuff out that doesn't need to be there. Or, yeah. you know, like ketamine increases blood flow to the brain dramatically. We know this with the, the imaging studies that we have. Mm -hmm. And so in a way, ketamine is like a control out delete combined with closing all the open tabs. That's kind of what ketamine is. So a patient after they wake up from ketamine is ripe soil to plant in new neurologic input. So for me and how my practice is different than others is that the work of the ketamine treatment is the three weeks following the treatment. It's the work that they do. What do they expose themselves to? How are they retraining their brain after it's ripe to, to plant whatever? Mm -hmm. So I usually talk to people about what does it mean to resonate with natural frequency? So sunlight and grounding yeah. and maybe intermittent fasting or, and definitely whole foods. And who are you relating with? Cut that's out those it. people that are, yeah. not, you know, that are not good for you you know, meditate, like do, like do the ketamine experience when you have time for integration afterwards. Otherwise it's just a trip. And yes, it's helpful. We've seen in the VA. That's a, and yeah. That's a great um, concept that you're bringing up because I'm reading this article here and it's um, healthharvard.edu um, and it's going over like how ketamine works in the brain and how it's used for depression and it's also used for some mood disorders as well but i mean a lot of the studies that i had pulled up they're bringing out that yeah it works but then it doesn't work in a certain like one-third of the population that it was used on mm -hmm. and now they have this new ketamine which um, i pulled this article where trump was saying trump orders a lot of ketamine for depressed veterans and uh johnson and johnson just got fda approved like they were fast-tracked on their approval for this drug and it's ketamine ketamine yeah mm -hmm. so that's going into it's a spray and it costs like 765 dollars mm -hmm. yeah but even with that they're saying there's not enough um yeah my experience with the, right my experience with the s-ketamine because i've had patients that were using compounded nasal ketamine for years before coming to me before it was fda approved and if you don't get into certain levels of altered consciousness, you can't move certain things. Right. You know, it's like you have to get to these certain levels and also have a plan for integration afterwards. So like when patients come to me that have gone to other clinics, they said, so how many times do I have to come? I said, you're here for this one time. Right. If you get a dramatic shift, you come again. Mm -hmm. Like other places, they have you sign up initially. You right. have to commit to seven times. No. You know, I don't That's do that. Wrong. Yeah, I think it's wrong too. Right. And I think any therapist should just leave it open to whatever. Because I know when I went to hypnotherapy, she didn't say you have to get three sessions. You have to get, she would be like, come whenever you want. And then whenever right. I felt blocked or I needed a shift, you know, I would go see her. 
whenever right. something was coming out in my environment, you know, right. uh, and I'd be like, this is weird. I'm having problems. I'm having anxiety. I go see her and we'd shift it, you know? Right. And, right. and so, and I would go whenever I needed a boost and it really felt like someone was tweaking my brain, like clearing stuff right. out and just kind of right. taking a nodule and going like, just yep. <laughs> yep. And see, here's, here's the beautiful thing with the way that I give the ketamine is that it is not, and I, and I was just talking about this yesterday. It is not the drug that is the anesthetic. The anesthetic is the patient's response to the drug. And yeah. we know that's true because if you give an anesthetic to a rock, nothing happens. Like it is the patient's response to it. And that response, that transition of consciousness. So I'm pushing people into an altered state of consciousness. They need to work to get back in. They need to work to get, to become integrated back into their body after the ketamine experience. It's that work that is the work. And that work continues for three weeks after. And you can learn how to alter your own consciousness by using ketamine in ways like you can actually teach somebody to transition their own consciousness without ketamine by using ketamine. But they were doing stuff like this with the LSD and mushrooms sure. and people were sure. also doing studies like this. Like I know UCLA had a big study many years right, ago. Right. I just read Michael Pollan's book and it was yeah, great. Michael Pollan, yeah. It was really um, enlightening. Now I've never tried any of that. Like I don't Me have neither. any experience with that, but I can I'm so sensitive. I can, right. I can be like this. <laughs> right. And I haven't People even. People are like, have you done ayahuasca? And I go, I can't do ayahuasca. Because <laughs> I'm already there. Because I'm already there. Just, you know, if you've been listening to this podcast, just the most interesting yeah. things that happened to me, you know, yeah. and it's just pretty wild. So my life is already an ayahuasca trip. Right. So right. I don't need any more. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and, and people say, if you've never done ketamine, how, how can you use it so well? Well, I've been watching consciousness come in and out of people under anesthesia for years and then develop my pediatric developmental practice yeah. where it's the same thing. It's how does consciousness enter the body of the child over 18 years? It's the right. same process. Right. And it's, it's interesting that you bring that up because people have so many repressed child traumas, mm -hmm. you know, from childhood that are coming out as an adult and they yeah. only come out as an adult because it's the safe time to come out. You right. know, or it's, it's unconscious or it's unconscious. Like people will argue with people. Like I see it all the time. You know, I see, and I could go, that's a 14 year old right there. He's 12. This one, right. Yes. You know, I have friends who are married and like literally, fight like brother and sister. It's ridiculous. Right. right. You know? And I'm just like, you're like, do you realize you guys are so juvenile and you're fighting? It's stupid. You know, you know we talk about this two party system, like Democrat and, and Republican, like that's the answer. And as far as I'm concerned, and this is like on the very first page of my website, I think the key to social reform is uncovering our own personal unconscious, yeah. unconscious patterning. That is the key to social reform. If we all did that, we wouldn't need parties or lobbyists or whatever, because we would know who we are. Yeah. You know, fundamentally, it's just about, are we awake? And if we're not awake, how do we recognize we're not awake? And how do we become awake? That is our entire existence. Yeah. I think that's a great point. So who would benefit from ketamine? So if somebody was listening to this podcast right now and said, hey, I think I, I would benefit from this, um, who would be a typical patient? 
So common patients I get because of the practice I'm in, I, I'm in a Lyme clinic practice. So I have a lot of patients oh, that- Oh, Lyme, with Lyme disease, yes. Uh-huh. Lyme disease, yeah. So I have a lot of patients that are um, self-identified with their illness. So mm-hmm. they say things like, I am a Lyme patient. That patient would definitely benefit. Anyone who says, I am a cancer patient, or I am this, I am autistic, or I- Like it's if like, fully you identified- it's interesting that you're bringing the I am up because one of my issues that I've had with certain people, um, you know, no offense to anybody listening, is that they identify with their illness and they never let it go. You know, and, and, it's and like I am a at some point. survivor, you know, right. Okay, right. Or, all right, how, how long are you going to, you're done with cancer, move on to something else. Right. You know, right. they we hold can't, on right. to it because it's an identity. It's an identity and we we have to take on that identity because we have to learn it. Mm -hmm. But then once we've learned it and digested it, we are no longer that. Yeah. We are no longer that. That pizza that's in front of us is pizza. But then once you put it in your body, it's no longer pizza. We've digested it. You know, it's like we're always in motion. We're different Mm -hmm. people. Every single breath we take in and, you know, there's some really interesting work with breath work that I do you know, breathing in one side or the other, the nostril can actually oh, yeah. change your consciousness. And I, yeah, do yeah. Mouth, I do mouth taping at night. I don't know if you have any experience with that, but you basically put tape over your mouth. So you're only breathing through your nose at night. And let me tell you, the first night I did that, I didn't realize that I was, that it was a problem that I was waking up 20 times a night to roll over. I thought that's just what people do. You switch positions. When I put the mouth tape on at eight o'clock at night, I woke up at 6, 6 a.m. the next morning for the first time. Ooh, it was I'm the first time I woke up. Yeah. So, and I don't have sleep apnea and I don't snore. It's just, we're supposed to be nose breathers, especially Mm -hmm. at night. Mm -hmm. And that breathing through the nose activates a nitric oxide pathway that does not exist in our mouth. And that nitrous oxide pathway is fundamental in creating consciousness. Wow. So that's kind of a new thing I'm working with with my patients because, you know, it's free. And I love to offer you know, free things that are really beneficial. Now, obviously you don't want to mouth tape if you know you have sleep apnea. (laughs) (laughs) And and I always say like, make the tape a little less sticky with your hands first before you put it on so that it'll fall off if you need it to. So, but I mean, they have devices, they have like formal devices you can buy that are mouth taping devices in the drugstore, but you know, McKesson clear tape, fine. You know, Yeah, because you can still kind of breathe through the little yeah. holes. Yeah, the yeah, micro yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, this has been such a, an awesome, fun discussion. Any last words from you? Anything to wrap this all up? You know, I just say, like, the greatest gift you can give yourself is to know yourself, you know? And it's not yeah. selfish at all. It's actually very unselfish. And, um, you know, to... to to give yourself the liberty of healing and to allow yourself that opportunity, that space, that healing is always possible. And that even is end of life. I work with people who transition end of life and the healing that we get to in their last week of life is unlike anything else. Yeah. Yeah. I study that a lot. It's very fascinating. So, So. and if anyone, um, I am available for, anthroposophic medical consults. So any kind of pediatric development or any kind of end of life issues or any kind of chronic illness, uh, mental stuff, any kind of, you know, the bigger picture 
um, you know, how do we wake up? I'm available for a consult via my website at drdebragambrell.com. There's a link on there that says, um, you know, book now for an appointment. Um, and then obviously I have my ketamine clinic in Foster City, and that's at uh, Pacific Frontier Medical. And their phone number is 650-474-2130. I also do consults for people that are getting ready to go into anesthesia. How can they best optimize to have the best, safest experience? And that takes, I need at least two months heads up for that if we're going to really work on you to optimize your condition. Really great for kids before they go into anesthesia. I have a really good program for that. And um, that's I do great consulting. for kids. Yeah, that's great for kids that are going through multiple anesthesia. Yep. You know, because yep. at Children's, we had kids, you know, the frequent flyers that would keep coming in. And, yep. so, and then it's like, what's that doing to their body? They need to be detoxed for sure yeah. from the whole experience mental, emotional, physical, the whole deal. And then I also do consulting with um, if anyone has any concerns about the EMF in their home and what the biologic effects are. And if mm -hmm. there's a way to be safer with their tech, a way to be safer with their light, a way to be safer with their biorhythms. So, and that's. You know, that's awesome. That's and all your information will be at the link at the end of this podcast. And thank you so much. And thanks thank for you. every, yeah, this was so much fun. I loved having you on. We'll probably have I, you on again. And it's always you great to talk on, with you. You're welcome. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. All right. And thank you again. And keep listening, nurses and hypochondriacs. Till next time. Stay focused and organized. One way you could do that is by downloading the nurse backpack app, which enables you to keep all your credentials in one place and to send it to your nurse manager, your recruiter, or to that next dream job. Download the app today. The link is located in our show notes. The World Health Organization has designated 2020 as the year of the nurse and midwife. In honor of the 200th birth anniversary of Florence Nightingale, and did you know that nurses have an 18-year running streak of being the number one most ethical and honest profession in all of America? Rogue Nurse Media 501c3 is going warp speed into this 2020 year of the nurse. We're sponsoring art exhibitions, murals, networking events, movie screenings, and writing webinars to promote the positive image of nurses in the media. We'd love for you to join our team. We're looking for volunteers and sponsors to help us go forward with this amazing journey. For more information, email us at nursesandhypochondriacs at gmail.com. And oh, don't forget to go ahead and give us a five-star rating on iTunes.